Welcome to the AI Events Podcast, your front row seat to exciting scholarly debates on pressing national issues. With new episodes every week, never miss out on the conversation and stay up to date on topics important to you. To hear more, check out our other channels related to education, domestic policy, and international issues. Hi, my name is Katherine Stevens. I'm a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, and I'm delighted to welcome you today to our webinar celebrating 100 years of the Women's Bureau in the U.S. Department of Labor and to discuss the role and future of family childcare. I have three fabulous women joining me here today who some of you know. First, Shannon Christian, who's the Director of the Office of Child Care in the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Shannon has worked for many years in child care and workforce development at both the state and federal levels. Next, Jessica Sager, who is the CEO and co-founder of All Our Kin, which is a highly successful organization that has been training and supporting family child care providers since Jessica co-founded the organization over two decades ago. And finally, Lori Todd Smith, who is director of the Women's Bureau in the U.S. Department of Labor. Uh, Lori has also worked for many years in child care, most recently as senior advisor for education and workforce to Governor Phil Bryant in Mississippi. We're going to begin today with remarks from Lori, who's going to give us an overview of the past, present, and future of the Women's Bureau on its one century birthday. We'll then hear from Jessica, who will talk about her extraordinary program and why she's been committed for decades to working with family child care providers. Finally, Shannon will provide a more in-depth sense of what's causing the decline in family childcare and some approaches for reversing that trend. So before turning the screen over to Lori, I want to present data for context, to give context for our conversation. The capacity of, of home-based childcare or family childcare, it means the same thing, declined by about one third, about 97,000 providers with a decline of 44% over those 12 years. The capacity of home-based care declined by about a third. Over that same period, the, the total capacity of childcare centers increased by 18%, adding 1.3 million spaces. So what that means is that in 2005, more than one in five total childcare spaces were in family childcare. And today, just a little over one out of 10 Spaces are in home-based care. So with that context, I am delighted to turn the screen over to Lori. Great. Thank you, Catherine. It's so nice <clears throat> to, to be here today, and thank you for even putting together this event to focus on family child care. I appreciate it very much. Um, as Catherine mentioned, my, my title now is the Director of the Women's Bureau. I'm the 19th Director of the Women's Bureau at the U.S. Department of Labor. 
And I wanted to start with telling you a little bit about the Department uh, of Labor and the Women's Bureau and, and then focus on some statistics related to family childcare. So the Women's Bureau is the only federal agency that is tasked with focusing on the needs of working women. And we just celebrated our 100 year anniversary last Friday uh, as the Women's Bureau was formed on June 5th of 1920. So for 100 years, we've been representing the needs of working women. And I wanna give a little history lesson here with the increasing numbers of women working following World War I, Congress felt it was really important uh, to make sure that women had a voice in labor issues. So in 1910, we had 5 million women working. And by 1920, that number was 8 million, representing 20% of the workforce. So while women were getting the right to vote and were able to represent their interests politically, which actually happened just two months after, we started, uh, the Women's Bureau started on June 5th, 1920, and women got the right to vote uh, just a two months later. So um, while women were getting this right to vote, I've been doing some homework on the very first director of the Women's Bureau. Her name was Mary Anderson, and she was the first person tasked with this uh, position. She focused on how to communicate the needs of working women at the Department of Labor to Congress and to employers. So remember, I mentioned that women were 20% of the workforce in, in 1920. Today, nearly 80 million women are in the workforce. And prior to COVID, we were representing 47% of American workers. And last year, we tied a 67 record low unemployment rate for adult women in December, where women held more than 50% of the jobs in America. So the Women's Bureau today has the same mission. There's so many things uh, that are similar to 1920. A lot has changed, but a lot of similarities. Um, I have the same mission right now as Mary Anderson did to represent women workers. So the Women's Bureau has been focused on paid family leave. We've been focused on women in apprenticeship grants to states to try to recruit women to go through non-traditional occupation pathways. We work with the VETS program to help uh, military spouses. 92% of military spouses are women, and we've been working on portability of licensure um, for, for those uh, groups. And we also give out grants called the Restore Grants that help women that are affected by the opioid epidemic. But consistently, one of the most protracted issues that the Women's Bureau has endeavored to take on is access to quality, affordable childcare. So I found some interesting things. Um, and there were bulletins in, in archives and history from 1920, and they had this amazing finding. I'm sure this will shock you. In 1920, they found that women had increased absenteeism in the textile mills compared to men. And they found and attributed this to the increased responsibilities of women at home. Isn't that shocking? It's hard to do podcasts and everybody laughing, but I think that's so interesting, but I hate to confess, but the Women's Bureau has not been universally successful in ensuring that every woman worker has access to affordable quality childcare. It has been an ongoing topic and will continue to be an ongoing topic for working women and working families, and it will be every year at the Women's Bureau. That in 1944, there was a report that showed the Community Service for Women War Workers and actually showed um, the need for family childcare in 1944 was the first place I saw it spoken about. And there was a response to a situation 
in this bulletin that I found where, quote, a mother kept her house locked until she got home at night and a neighbor woman invited the children to come over after school every afternoon and stay until their mother came home. And the bulletin exclaimed that this was the answer to our child care problems. That was 1944. So in the 60s and 70s, the Women's Bureau has focused on child care and actually opened the very first child care center for federal employees at the Francis Perkins Building, where I work now in, at the U.S. Department of Labor, and it survives to this day. In the 80s and 90s, uh, I think you'll find this interesting. Uh, the Women's Bureau endeavored to encourage employer-subsidized child care, which although has been expanded, still to this day faces some regulatory barriers. Right now, only 11% of employers provide this benefit, but 44% of, empl of employers provide wellness programs like smoking cessation or free fitness club memberships. So I think there's some work we could consider doing there. But as COVID has presented these new issues and challenges, the Department of Labor has been tackling it head on. On Monday, the Department of Labor announced the award for three dislocated worker grants, totaling nearly $17 million to help the workforce uh, related impacts of coronavirus. Um, Monday's award uh, follows five previous awards and to date, $238 million has been dispersed to states under the CARES Act to help during this emergency time. Um, the Women's Bureau as well has stayed focused on, um, on ways we can help children and families. I have a few statistics I wanna um, provide to you about the importance of us thinking right now about how to get this childcare right. Um, and a few data points from pre-COVID. Um, in two-thirds of families with school-aged children, both parents work. Four in 10 working adults have children under the age of 18. Before coronavirus struck, approximately one-third of all children under five attended paid care facilities, daycare centers, preschool, or kindergarten. Um, many of you might have heard about Bright Horizons, one of the country's largest childcare providers, closed more than half of its centers in mid-March. Kinder Care had 1,300 centers nationwide and has closed about 900 facilities. About 1.5 million people employed in the childcare industry have seen their jobs disappear. So as people return to work in waves now, larger childcare providers are likely to struggle to reach profitability if they're not working at full capacity. We know that parents might decide right now that they want family childcare in order to keep their children out of the large group settings. In some data that I think you're gonna hear about in a minute from Jessica from All Our Kin, they did a study, a national survey that showed over 7 million children birth to age five, I think this is pre-COVID, receive care in home-based childcare centers. And I think that number is likely to grow. Couple more data points. The Bipartisan Policy Institute or Bipolicy Policy Center did a study um, and asked parents um, what their primary concern was in returning to work, uh, in returning children to a formal childcare center. The primary concern was exposure to COVID-19. 75% of the respondents said that. It was a higher concern than the affordability of childcare, which was at 46% or the likelihood that their own childcare center would open, which was at 47%. The 
this is another indication that family childcare will probably have a sharp increase in, the, in demand. Um, Harvard University researchers also have stated that the social distancing practices that we're doing today may need to continue well into 2022, and therefore small home-based childcare programs will be a valuable uh, option for communities as they gradually reopen their economies. So it's very clear to me that the need for family childcare is greater than ever. There's a lot of news right now about how the economy needs childcare to reopen, and this is very true. But we might consider, even amid a national crisis, that it might be time to re-examine childcare as a whole instead of designing grant programs that simply try to turn back the clock. Maybe what we were doing before shouldn't be the path forward. We have to ask so we can make funding streams reflect the fact that families might have different needs moving forward. So perhaps the best way to increase the amount of money there is for childcare might be pursuing policies that make it easier for provider, um, employers to provide childcare as a benefit. Perhaps we should look at childcare costs being uh, deductible, maybe an increase in the childcare dependent tax credit. What are the options here? The other compelling question is that will parents want to have their children in big groups again? Family childcare may offer a big solution to parents who won't want that. So I wanna reiterate that all forms of childcare will be needed going forward. But for right now, if we just throw money at an existing system without really trying to think about the types of care that families want moving forward would be something we should consider. Only the market's going to be able to decide that, but we should try to reflect the comfort of parents and their choices. So reopening childcare facilities, private, public, nonprofit, faith-based is all very important. And I want, uh, and I hope that all these providers can reopen to their uh, pre-COVID uh, normal operations. We need them and we need them in the future. But family-based care is essential and probably will grow moving forward. We just can't assume that parents are going to want the same things for their children tomorrow as they did before the pandemic. Uh, a couple more things about women. Uh, to get women back to work, we don't just need the providers that were working before. We probably need even more providers and smaller providers, especially if it's taking months for those schools to reopen. We know that there's 1.5 million childcare workers again that are mostly women in the United States who also need work. And maybe we need to make sure they stay in the field of childcare as a viable option for them. If they're qualified and able to be entrepreneurs and start their own businesses in the wake of the pandemic, we need to make sure that they're not disadvantaged in doing so by big grants that choose winners and losers. So I'm gonna wrap up um, and I hope that we will have even more questions come up of things we should consider. Um, and I'm looking forward to this great discussion about family childcare today. I'm gonna to turn it over now to Jessica and I believe that her screen will come up next. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hi, everyone. I'm Jessica Sager. I'm the Chief Executive Officer of All Our Kin. I'll tell you about All Our Kin in a minute. But first, let me just say how thrilled I am to be here with all of you today. I'm here to talk about family child care. But more broadly, I'm here to talk about how we can create child care that works for children and for families.
So the first thing I want to say is this milestone, the Women's Bureau of the Department of Labor, is really perfect for this topic because caring for and educating our youngest children, it's work. And it's work whether we do it at home with our own children, it's work if it's paid or if it's unpaid labor, and it's some of the most important and vital work that there is. And the burden of this work has disproportionately fallen on women. And let me say it has disproportionately fallen on black and brown women, and it has not been adequately funded, supported, or recognized. So to lift up and honor the work of caring for children in this moment, uh, I think is, is really profound, and I'm very excited to be part of this. I used to say the childcare system in the US was broken, and then I realized that was giving us too much credit. We don't have a childcare system at all. It doesn't work for children, families, or caregivers. And this is true for pretty much every family, right? Even families with plenty of income who work nine to five, who have two parents, struggle to find care. But if you have families who have very young children, families with single parents, families who work non-standard hours or face challenges around transportation or have limited financial resources. These families have incredible barriers in finding care. And this existed even in the pre-COVID era. And I'll talk about what it's like now in just a moment. In the absence of a system, women, it is overwhelmingly women, across the country open their homes to care for each other's children. These family child care providers meet a crucial need. They are truly the unsung heroes of child care, and without them, our system breaks down completely. Children don't receive the love, care, and attention that they need and deserve. Parents can't go to work, and the fragile arrangements that families have built fall apart. But like so much of the work that has traditionally been done by women, the work of family childcare educators has long been overlooked. For far too long, we've assumed that family childcare is at best babysitting. We've failed to recognize that family childcare educators are in fact both educators and business people with so much to offer. They've been underpaid and undervalued and lacked access to training, resources, and support. So in response, my organization, All Our Kin, has created what we call a quality highway, investing in family childcare educators as both teachers and business people. We work with about a thousand caregivers across Connecticut and New York City, supporting them in becoming licensed and meeting health and safety standards, bringing them the very best of what we know the field has to offer about how young children learn and develop, and finally, supporting them as entrepreneurs and business people so that they can build what are truly successful small businesses rooted in community and meeting a desperately important community need. Our work is a triple win because when we provide quality care, children get the foundational early learning experiences that are essential to their future success. Families, and let us be honest, particularly mothers, are able to enter the labor force and to be successful there, feeling good about where their children are cared for. And family child care educators themselves, who again are women business people, are able to build thriving businesses that support and sustain both themselves and their families. 
So just a little bit about our outcomes, just to make the point that investing in family childcare makes a difference. All our kin's work is transforming the supply of childcare. We're reversing that really disturbing trend that Catherine highlighted and increasing the supply of care in the areas where parents need it most. We've shown that really high quality care is possible in family childcare settings. So again, I think often there's been kind of this, uh, this assumption that family childcare is not education as well as care. We've shown that with training and support, family childcare educators, in fact, can meet incredibly high standards of quality and quality that is driven by attachment, by deep connection to families and all the things that we know parents are really hungry for in their childcare programs. We've also shown that children in our programs uh, have better outcomes on tools that measure social and emotional skills, precognitive skills, and all the things that prepare them for success in school and in life. And finally, our work is truly business development. We create pathways out of poverty so that our caregivers earn more and are actually able to build pathways to increased earnings and well-being for themselves and their families. The results, according to the University of Connecticut Center for Economic Analysis, is that for every dollar we invest in a family childcare program, we're delivering 15 to $20 of investment to the community as a whole. And it's important to pull out some of the pieces of that because one piece of that is about the increased earnings, the increased spending, the increased taxes paid by family childcare educators, but a huge and exponential piece of that is that by investing in family childcare, we're making it possible for parents to go to work and to remain in the workforce successfully. Now, I wanna go on and use the remainder of my time to talk about family childcare in the present moment. Family childcare educators in the face of COVID-19 are truly frontline workers. You heard a little bit about the data on the access to care. Programs are closing across the country and parents are scrambling and family childcare programs are staying open at much higher rates than centers. Over 60% of family childcares remain open in large part because family childcares are caring for the children of essential workers and those on the front lines. In doing that, Family child care educators are putting themselves, their own bodies on the front lines and holding and nurturing the families in greatest need. If there is one thing I want everyone here to take away, it is the necessary uh, fact that if we don't invest in and support these programs in remaining open and reopening as the economy reopens, we will destroy wonderful programs that are rooted in community and that are making it possible for families to manage through this crisis and return to work when it's over. Just a few notes to say again the point I made already. Family childcare is both more essential and more fragile than ever before across centers and family childcare programs. Across the country, childcare programs are closing. 60% of programs closed at last count. But family child care educators, as I said, remain open in higher numbers, 60, 70%. And I will say that the providers that are supported by all our kin's consultation and services are closer to 80%.
which I think speaks both to the support that we're able to provide uh, and to their deep, deep commitment to children and to families. And finally, just to make this point, because I think it's so important, as many as 50% of our family childcare programs and our center-based programs may close permanently, and family childcares are at greatest risk because they already operate at razor-thin margins. This is important because as Lori stressed, parents, we hear anecdotally, are going to want family childcare as a choice when they return because of the small group size, because of the nurturing and intimate nature of family childcare, because of the flexibility that these programs offer. Um, I wanna say very plainly that I do not see family childcare as a replacement for centers. I think both are valuable. I think both are essential. And what I hope we can do is invest in and support the entire system of care, but make sure that we include family childcare. One more thing I want to tell you, open or closed, family child cares are supporting the children and families in greatest need. Just so you understand the mission and passion of family child care, those of our educators who have closed are still connecting families to resources, are still calling families every other day to check in. They're dropping off books and curriculum materials. They're leading live stream sing-alongs with children. They are doing so much to nurture children and families during this time. And I'm really excited for us to support them as we move into the next phase of the COVID-19 crisis. Because open or closed, family child cares are also struggling economically. Even if they continue to provide care, they're serving fewer children and it is really tough to make ends meet. We hear story after story of family child care educators experiencing personal hardship so that they continue to, for example, pay assistance and provide care to children. I'm not gonna spend much time on this. All Our Kin has a brand new policy paper that I'll invite you to take a look at, but we really think that as we think about how to sustain and how to reopen and rebuild, there are three big things we need to think about. Health and safety. How do we get cleaning supplies, health and safety supplies, the latest public health information, into the hands of family child care educators. Economic stability. How do we think about using fiscal stabilization grants and other mechanisms, uh, including philanthropy and public dollars, to put money into family child care programs so that they can manage and survive through this crisis? And finally, social and emotional well-being, both for the educators themselves and as they support children and families in navigating through this very tough time. So that means coaching, consultation, support in trauma-informed practices and ways to help families and children especially face a new normal that is really scary and hard for all of us. Uh, now, all the things that I'm describing about investing in family childcare in all these three buckets, health and safety, economic security, social emotional well-being. These are things that are essential now. The truth is these are things that we should have done a long time ago. My vision is that through managing through this moment and rising to this moment, we can in fact invest in and build a childcare system that honors, lifts up and supports the work of family childcare educators and center-based providers that builds a true system 
that creates meaningful choices for parents, and that is rooted in and lifts up this work that grows organically and naturally out of community and is so deeply responsive to parent and to family needs. My contact information is here. I encourage you to reach out to me. I encourage you to take a look at our policy paper. We have some broad guidelines, and then we also have COVID-19 specific guidelines. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be with all of you today. With that said, it's my great pleasure to hand this off to Shannon Christian, the head of the Federal Office of Child Care. Thank you very much, Jessica. And everyone else, this is a great opportunity to build on each other's ideas and the work that we've been doing. And I appreciate the chance to have the federal perspective in the mix. We oversee the Child Care and Development Fund, which is an $8.7 billion block grant that goes to states, territories, and tribes to subsidize child care for low-income working families and also to invest in quality improvements that benefit all children. Uh, this funding source is the largest for this purpose across government. In keeping with the program's high value placed on parental choice, the subsidies are available for children ages birth to 13 for use in a wide variety of childcare settings, both center and home-based. The home-based settings involved range from licensed and license exempt family childcare homes to informal family friend and neighbor care to care provided in the child's own home. For today's discussion, I'll be talking about family child care in general, regardless of whether or not providers receive subsidies. Payments from, from parents are the most common source of revenue. They're between 76 and 84% of what's received by providers, depending on what category of provider, family-based provider we're talking about, which is a really complicated mix that we're not gonna go there much. <laughs> so, uh, on top, I want to also say that on top of our regular funding that I mentioned earlier, we received a supplemental uh, appropriation as part of the Coronavirus Aid Relief Economic Security Act, which is nicknamed CARES Act. Um, so that $3.5 billion uh, in supplemental funding is to help the states, territories, and tribal lead agencies, um, the ones who run the programs, address COVID-19 impacts and the law made special mention of the need to serve emergency workers and to help sustain the childcare market during the closures and reduced enrollment for all, subsidized and unsubsidized, so that those providers would be there later when the, when the uh, coronavirus ended. Like the rest of you, we are deeply concerned about the decline in family childcare providers, given their unique strengths and the special niche that they fill. We know that home-based childcare is an important option, particularly for families seeking infant and toddler care, for parents with non-standard work hours or variable work schedules. It's important to note that only 8% of centers actually provide care during non-standard hours, compared to 34% in family childcare and even higher still percentages in other categories of home-based care. For children with special needs, it's particularly important for families in rural areas where often family childcare is the only available option. In addition to how uh, 
family child care uh, supports families. We also see that it benefits um, the community, children and parents. It provides the opportunity to develop a one-on-one -on -one relationship with a single caregiver. It offers nurturing, responsive relationships. As we said, the flexible hours that work for um, often the poorer people newer to the workforce are the ones that get the least desirable shifts and are often the ones working extended or weekend or nighttime um, care options. And that's uh, a bigger problem for them than the market in general, I would say. Um, location is important. Um, these are generally neighborhood based and close to the family's home, which reduces transportation barriers. Uh, family childcare can serve mixed age groups and allow siblings to be cared for together. They're generally lower cost than center based care. Um, also appreciated the intimate home like setting that is often compatible with the cultural and linguistic preferences of the children and the families. They offer continuity of care. The children often enter that care as an infant and stay through the elementary school years as their after-school provider. And the caregivers often thought of as an extended family member and guiding influence that parents really trust. Family childcare providers that engage with parents on a regular basis are perceived as an asset to the whole community. So I wanna mention piggybacking on what others said earlier that with the COVID-19 health crisis, family childcare has become even more important and that <clears throat> compared to centers, the family uh, childcare's home, home base served and continue to serve the emergency and essential workers at a higher rate. And although there were significant closures types of care, family childcare either stayed open or is reopening at a higher rate. The early June data that we received from Child Care Aware of America shows that compared to this time last year, there are 47% of centers versus 35% of family child care homes that remain closed. This is uh, down from the provider closures of 70% for centers and 46% for family child care in May. Uh, the closures have uh, put the importance of child care, all kinds, um, front and center in the public's eye because of their in impact on work and especially in the for the emergency workers who were desperate, couldn't telework, and all of a sudden these gaps in the system became apparent. Um, I think it's important at this point also to mention family childcare as a business opportunity. Lori started with we kind of looking at it both as something that's critical to the range of parent for working families, but it's also an entrepreneurial opportunity for working women um, or women who would like to stay home and watch their own children and work at the same time. With demand increasing for family childcare and significant job loss in parts of the childcare sector, this opportunity. Um, for those interested in providing services is growing. So I wanna tell you just a little bit about what we know about the annual childcare income that's received across types of home-based providers that serve children birth through age five that were not yet in kindergarten, so the younger ones. This data is old, um, it's 2011, 2012 data. We have gone out and done a new study, but people are still analyzing, so forgive me, but 
the, um, for the listed providers, which is just a little complication here, the listed providers of family child care are the ones that are the most connected to the system. They're likely to be licensed or legally operating license exempt, which is often they don't meet the threshold in terms of number of children to have to be licensed, but they're still tracked and they're still, you know, on people's awareness radar screen. They might be registered by the state in order to re receive subsidies, and they're more likely to be part of the professional organizations like the National Association of Family Child Care, which helps support the um, issues of uh, quality and funding and a whole range of um, important topics for family child care. Um, and then those that are considered unlisted are, is a huge group. It's as big as the listed group. They often serve an even smaller number of children. There may be no requirements. They're often part-time after-school providers. They may have another job at the same time, um, but they are a potential pool for creating more committed, regulated childcare businesses that are a little bigger. So I want to say the difference in what they earn. At the 75th percentile, say they're at the top of their game, the listed providers, and this is all data, were earning just under $40,000 a year from their childcare businesses. And the average was just under 30,000. For the unlisted providers, which are often far, far smaller, maybe two or three children, maybe a little more, um, they were uh, at the top of their game, 75th percentile, they were earning nine, just under 9,600 a year. So that's less than a fourth of what the listed providers were making. And then the average for them was um, 7,400. So, you know, it's, it's hard to tell exactly per hour how that works out, but you can see how if somebody wanted to think about this and, and needed it as a main income source, not just an extra thing to support a family, they might want to try to shoot for the more business-like, business-oriented uh, family childcare operations. Uh, so now I'm going to mention a little bit about why we think there's a decline. Now you've talked about the amount of decline, um, so I'm going to skip that. But I think it's um, important to mention in part that one thing didn't get said was that in analyzing the data at HHS, we've seen that the ones who've left the provider groups from 2012 to 2019, the big drop that others have cited, turned out to be the youngest the ones with the least years of experience and also the most educated. So we're thinking it may be mostly those that could get a better job and feel more respected in their job during a time of economic growth and more employment opportunities. So we'll have to see how those two things play out against each other because there's also the issues of demand and pay and everything else. So I thought I would mention just a couple things from the literature that, um, that are said across all sources to impact uh, the drop in family child care. And they include things like low or unpredictable income and no benefits. Uh, family child care providers lack business expertise. There's declining enrollment, increased competition, and availability of other options for families. And that includes um, publicly funded pre-K, which has impacted both um, private child care centers and private family child care homes. There's the rising costs of housing and insurance. There are local challenges such as zoning restrictions, 
and high fees for licensing applications. Often at the local level, the zoning restrictions will not let a, a family run a business from their home and then they're stuck, they can't do it. Um, there's technology challenges, they're not all online, they don't all have connectivity and equipment. Um, the demands of the job, they work long hours, they feel isolated, there are um, tough physical requirements, it's hard to balance work and family, and um, they're caring for mixed age groups, which is also demanding because you have to have separate programming for everybody. Providers are retiring and not being replaced by new providers. That same thing we've all talked about, this lack of respect that they feel. Um, they're not recognized as a, uh, a learning opportunity more than a babysitter. They're, they have difficulty navigating uh, multiple and changing requirements such as comprehensive background check requirements, which can be particularly tough because if you wanna get subsidies and even for the general uh, population, not just the subsidized family childcare homes in order to be legal, have to do a background check on everyone who lives in the family. Um, there's difficulty navigating and successfully participating in quality improvement systems that may have been designed for centers, not only inappropriate in terms of content sometimes, but they operate during the day when family child care are often at home with the children and unable to attend. And there's difficulty accessing advancement opportunities. Thanks for listening to the AEI Events Podcast. You can find new episodes each week on your favorite podcast apps. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. We'll see you next week.